out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Esau. This is going to be part two of the interview I did with Terry Graham, finding out more about the Gun Club, which is, um, yes, this one runs comfortably after part one. So, um, yes, after we reconnected again, we got down to that exciting subject that was, well, several things, actually. One was the conversation around the, uh, the book that's going to be coming out by Kid Congo Powers, which I think is going to be September time. Um, so we pick up with that, and then I babble on about the late 70s and early 80s scene which you'll hear I know you can fast forward that bit and then uh, yes Terry's back on the game or back chatting about life in the gun club anyway enjoy Terry tell us more about the book from kid coming out finally I I oh years ago I, I said kid really seriously you need to write a book write a book just do it <laughs> and and I know that he wanted to I think he just had uh, maybe a little trouble finding the right person to kind of help him along, which I, I did as well when I wrote my book. And and uh, uh, and I said, you know, you need any help, whatever it is, just let me know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but, it, you know, it finally happened, and I'm really happy for him. I think it's going to be a fun read. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be so exciting. Yeah. So, yes, The Gun Club, you haven't got your new... So the first album, because roughly... This is my kind of exciting musical kind of theory. It's not really a theory, but, you know, we had the punk period, didn't we? You know, this is quite simplistic. Yeah, right. And then there's a post-punk world of, you know, bands like, you know, The Gang of Four, you know, Public Image Limited and Magazine, all those bands, Marky Smith. And and then sort of the, the 1980s sort of arrives in the UK. You know, we have, you know, Margaret Thatcher, 1979, right. who's a, you know, big kind of influence and has a great... Oh, not great, but you know, well, she does have a massive ideology about life and politics. Yeah. And then we have, you know, huge amount of unemployment in this country as well. And also, we've got the Falkland War, we've got the miners' strike, we've also got the Green and Common, you know, with you know, crews and you know, nuclear warheads on our, you know, and people protesting. Yeah. So, there was a lot of protests going on at that stage, which I guess LA would be very different. Um, for you and and you know what how things were feeling even though you have you know Ronald Reagan and a sort of a, a rise yeah. of that that kind of things are going to be marvelous from the right yes yes we had our Ronald Reagan Thatcher so um you know it was it was uh uh similar but what uh, you know I mean this is in hindsight but uh I remember thinking how he was such a uh kind of a lightning rod you know and 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 really used as a as almost the perfect foil for so many projects or bands or songs um that uh that bounced off of the image of ronald reagan the stereotype and everything about it i mean i it, it, at the time people just thought a fucking actor really seriously is the president and well i guess anything's possible then okay all right then you know let's just elect mickey mouse why not i mean who cares right yes. ronald reagan is elected so you know um but uh but 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 in hindsight i thought well you know what he was the perfect foil i mean <laughs> he was like why do you want someone better uh because what do you rebel off of what do you use as your fuel your ammunition to uh you know i mean this and he really did some things uh i mean i have I didn't pay much attention at the time, but 
but um, I do remember some some decisions that I thought were very, you know, that really had a lot of uh, impact on uh, people, which is unusual for an American president to really have any genuine impact other than uh, uh, just his uh, occasional, uh, you know, speeches and, and things. But um, uh, when he fired all the aircraft uh, or the um, air controllers. Oh, yes, that's um, a classic, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it just literally, you know, and I remember thinking, well, wait a minute. These are experienced people. They know what they're doing. There's thousands of lives are in their hands every day. You don't want to pay them a little more money? Pay them a little more money. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't know. Figure it out. Uh, but no, fired them. They stayed fired. Uh, and I thought, wow, that's a little bit cold. And then um, there was this huge thing that still affects the U.S. and in particular Los Angeles today when um, it was, um, and again, I don't remember the details, but basically people seeking mental health uh, therapy of whatever form, um, people with psychological problems uh, had a place to go, a place to talk to, even mm. a place to sleep and stay if they had to there was there was <laughs> it seemed like there was um more of a structure in place to deal with that and then reagan was somehow sort of responsible again i'm sure i'm wrong about everything but uh, uh about this but but i just simply remember it was one way before he was president and then during his presidency suddenly those people had nowhere to go and suddenly there was this, this, this obvious increase of homeless people, people on the street, and the vast majority of whom had psychological problems. It was pretty obvious, you know, when they're screaming at the lamppost yes. um, all day long. And, and now Los Angeles is literally uh, parts of it. Um, there are thousands of people on the street. Uh, and many, if not most of those people have some sort of psychologically impaired underpinning to uh, their condition, to their situation. And there's no help for them. You know, in spite of the, uh, well, here's, here's covered California, you know, the new uh, so-called so Obamacare health plan, blah, blah, blah. Where did it go wrong? I, these people are still on the street living on a sidewalk in a tent you know, thousands and thousands of them. And, and so those decisions that he made back then uh, never really were resolved. Uh, and, and so we, we, we see the effects of them now. They've simply just grown and just yes. simply gotten worse, you know, and here we are. So, so yeah, I mean, Reagan was, I think for us, uh, you know, I, I suppose he was a very similar and, uh, and uh, but you're right. I mean, in Los Angeles, it's, it's, it's kind of hard. It's hard to get people to do anything here, much less protest. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, uh, to go see the greatest band in the world, you got to drag them out of their house. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so, but, so as, as the as the decade started to sort of shape up, you you know, you bring the first album out, Fire of Love, which is uh, eighty one. So, was this? What was your memories of this period? Was the band on a particularly sort of creative kind of? you know, path? Uh, well, actually, uh, no, we were, uh, we were for, I'd say, pretty disaffected 
individuals, uh, Jeff, in the, you know, lost in the circus of his, um, his, 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 his daydream theater, of which he was the audience and the star. <laughs> um, and that was fine. You know, we, we understood that about Jeff, because really, he was just a kind of a fountain of ideas and, and things, you know, constantly. Um, uh, Rob had some issues with uh, drug use, namely heroin. And that was um, early on, but it was, it had begun. Uh, I'd say Ward and I were pretty clean. We didn't really, and, and Kid as well, always been, I mean, we've done our share of things here and there, but never to the extent where we had to kind of, uh, you know, step outside of normal life and, and uh, go seek rehabilitation or, or something. It just, I, I never had any problem with anything, drinking or drugs. I played around, but yes. um, it gave me a massive headache. So I thought, well, what's the good of this shit? Um, <laughs> so, yeah. and plus I got to play drums. I can't, I can't be screwed up and play drums. At least, at least I can't. Yeah. Um, but uh, so we were, and we were all, I mean, I think, you know, post-punk immediately, post-punk, we were kind of frustrated and a, a little angry, you know, things aren't quite going the way we wanted. What are we going to do? And so Fire of Love kind of had a lot of that. We were, there's sort of some anger in there. There's a lot of sort of angsty stuff. And I think it actually contributed <laughs> to the way it ended up sounding. Um, but we wanted to, get it over with as quickly as possible i mean we had no choice we only had two thousand dollars to record the album at two different studios which i thought was ridiculous but um uh so we just kind of slam bam thank you ma'am you know get in do it we're done let's go find a real band to be in i think <laughs> was you know it was sort of everybody's attitude we wanted really we really did want to create that album and um, and I know Kid was looking forward to it, but of course, when Lux and Ivy from the Cramps come come a calling, uh, you just you just say, okay, I'm in the car, let's go. Uh, yes, you know, you're really, not gonna you're not gonna miss that gig, are you really? No, you you just go. And we were we were sad and and extremely jealous, and uh, so we tried to warn Kid of the horrible voodoo rituals they may have to endure. <laughs> uh, we joked around with him, you know, God only knows what kind of person you're going to be when this is all over we're totally jealous kid go have the best time of your life you know just go do it yeah um and uh, he was smart enough to go do it yeah. but um but you know we found ward i mean he was from uh from orange county which for all of us living in la was sort of like a strange world and we didn't know what lived down there of course i live in orange county now but um <laughs> but uh <laughs> But Ward was really, he loved rockabilly, he loved roots music, he loved country western. He, so again, he had a natural feel for all of that kind of stuff. So in, at rehearsals with him and Jeff, because he was really connected to Jeff, Gun Club was a band, all of our cues came off of vocals. And uh, so we really had to be tied in, especially me, tied into Jeff and uh, vocal cues going in and out of various segments. And um, so Ward had no problem. Uh, working with Jeff and just kind of distilling what he was saying and uh, Jeff wasn't the best at describing exactly what he wanted it was just kind of like you know give me a Bo Diddley beat uh, mm. okay Jeff sure whatever <laughs> um, and then I just play something 
you know, and he'll kind of listen for a moment and shrug his shoulder. And that, that was that, that was good enough. Um, that's actually part of what I liked about the band. You know, we really were free to do what we wanted. And Rob, we never had to talk to because he always played the perfect thing. Yeah. Um, and what's, and, your memories, um, what's your memories of, of sort of, you know, a track like She's Like Heroin to Me? How did that come together? Well, that was, uh, uh, I remember when Jeff came in with that, first of all, I just loved the title of the song. Um, and I know that Jeff always had these kind of these females. I don't know if they existed in real life or if they were just these phantoms that lived in his head. These, these always impossible to get women, you know. Um, invariably, they were blondes. Invariably, they had 10 boyfriends at once, you know. But, but I think that was just the crucible that he needed, you know, to sort of feel this, this unique pain that I'll never have that, but I can write a song about it. Yes. And, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, thank God Jeff was in pain and he couldn't get it because otherwise <laughs> we'd have never heard from the guy. Yes. Um, but uh, uh, so that one, you know, it was, Jeff would often come in like Black Train. We would do different versions. We would do sort of a slow version, a fast version. We had three different versions of Black Train. I liked them all. I thought they were all great. Uh, and then it was kind of like, well, how do we want to do this? And it was the same thing with heroin where, you know, we, we just, uh, we'd play it slow and then and it was kind of this medium tempo. And finally it was like, you know what, let's just blow the doors off this thing and just go nuts on it. That's, that's what this should be. This is just a crazy thing about uh, what someone means to me. And, uh, you know, we could joke about mainlining it. Of course, Rob knew exactly what we were talking about. Yeah. But, um, uh, but so that's the way it would happen with a lot of songs, Preaching Blues. I mean, you listen to Robert Johnson's Preaching Blues since he wrote it. Um, and I often wonder how the hell did Jeff get? I mean, I can see sort of how, I can hear how he got the song, but nonetheless, it that was the beginning of my, actually after I left the band a, a real appreciation of what Jeff did mm. with these things because I would listen to the originals and I'd listen to his version and I thought well I don't know how he got there but it was a unique inspiration that he had to get there and I really began to appreciate that and um, it took me a little while longer before I actually began to listen to his lyrics I mean I, I heard them all the time I, I could tell you what what they are in my sleep but i never really listened mm -hmm. you know, i didn't care i'm the drummer i'm just trying to come in right and save jeff from himself on stage <laughs> um and um you know but but I, I, I again i just such an appreciation for the talent that when i was in the band i i, I yeah i appreciated it but just not nearly as much as later on yes when i, think I began that... to go wow you know he did some really amazing stuff i really like it I sort of I seem to remember the members of Joy Division not really sort of paying attention to the lyrics of Ian Curtis yeah. and being a bit surprised. So when you when the album came out and you heard it, were you like, "Wow, that's impressive"? And also, when you know when you were touring it, did you start to find a lot more interest in the band that was starting to uh, sort of pick up, you know, what you were trying to do? Well, we had one of those uh, not unusual situations here in. Uh, Los Angeles, where 
And I suppose it could happen anywhere I, I, and has. Whereas a hometown band is not necessarily the hometown favorite. Um, and I think because so many people in the scene knew us already, because we'd been a part of it for so long, and we knew them, Gun Club would play in the very beginning and, you know, some people would show up. We had a few fans, but it was nothing special. It was just kind of like a smattering of applause. Mm-hmm. And um, and I thought, you know, because they just they almost knew us too well. I think <laughs> I don't know what it was, but um, uh, but when the album came out, I thought, well, thank God we have our statement. I, I really like the sound. It's a little thin for me. I, Rob is missing uh, in, in a way. I wish he was much more upfront. But you know, two grand two different studios you get whatever you get and you just got to be happy with it and uh so i was i was happy with it and and i really you know other than those complaints i i really liked it and so i didn't have any high expectations i don't think any of us did um but we began to get a little bit of local press you know the los angeles weekly which was a free weekly uh, newspaper that came out and had a lot to do with reviewing bands and and concerts, you know, pre-internet, yeah. um, people really paid attention to that. And one of our friends, you know, wrote a review, and then there was another one of the live shows, and then they got around to the album. But uh, it, it never really was much. It just wasn't much of a thing in LA. Mm. However, uh, when New York heard it, it was suddenly it was different. Uh, when Boston heard it, it was different. And we managed to find our way onto college radio playlists, which at the time, and I really think in a lot of ways was better than, uh, uh, I mean, I feel sorry for some young bands these days. It's almost much harder, you know, to, to get known. But if you could just get on one of these college radio kind of networks, uh, well, night you know your album is uh, fire blood was being played everywhere and so we began to build this fan base and particularly along the east coast the upper midwest of america and then finally in europe yes and uh, europe so that's, you, wouldn't they? Uh, we we didn't know i mean we were shocked the whole way we'd like wow we have fans we went to the show in boston which was our first show outside of uh Los Angeles uh, played New York second and it was sold out. I mean, it was a small club, 300 people, but completely sold out. I mean, people were outside looking through the glass walls, you know, and we were just shocked. Like, yes. why do you know, are you here for us? Is there a headlining <laughs> band? What do you, how, we don't get it. Um, so, uh, and I think that was kind of a healthy attitude for us to have, but. What was um, the, when was the first time you went to Europe or and, and the UK? It was right after that. We played at a place called The Venue uh, in London, and it was, I think, about 1,200 people. It was, that was also sold out for the for show. We enjoyed that. I wish we'd had a couple of days to acclimate. You know, yeah. that would have been nice. Oh, my God. I really, really wanted the show to be good for the fans in London. For some reason, it just meant a lot to me. You know, I just really wanted this to be good. And and. and I don't think it was, we were a little wiped out. It, was, it wasn't as good as it could have been, at least from my point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't disappointed. I met some, just some incredible people and uh, this guy, Mike Mastrangelo, who was um, 
uh, had our fan club and reviewed the record a couple of times for sounds and stuff. Um, such a great guy and, and uh, really helped us. Uh, you know, we, we, we were like, Mike, what's going on? People like us over here. Why? What's the problem? <laughs> is there something in the water? Is there a problem here? <laughs> you know? I think, I think one of it is that I know from being a, you know, like a, a music fan and stuff, it was always exciting to find something from far away. I think, you know, anybody who was local, you just went and initially think, oh no, they're rubbish. Or you kind of even worse, <laughs> right. you kind of, you kind of knew them and they were slightly irritating. So you didn't. Exactly. Them. Right. Yeah. So, you know, anything from New York, I remember, you know, being very excited right. by, you know, and obviously Sonic Youth, you're going to like them regardless because they just look so cool uh-huh. and the buttholes yeah. and then you got Big Black and then Husker Do and, you know, even Lydia Lunch seemed exciting, you know, and I think, but, you know, and, and hugely talented because you just something exotic about it, isn't it? From, from far away, they must just be all just so cool living in some loft and hanging out with Andy. Yeah. You know, we just pitched. Exactly. Like, you know, yeah. We have this and some pitch. of them actually were, you know, I mean, it was, <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, but, but we, I, I think, I mean, we just, uh, we loved it so much because, um, you know, doing what we were doing, which was kind of taking, not completely, but in a sense, you know, old blues things that were so uniquely a part of who we were anyway, but yet uh, interpreting that or defining that or playing things like that for people, it didn't mean that they had a clue what we were doing and so it really felt good just on a musical level for yes. people to kind of recognize that appreciate that um because we were not traditionalists and we knew we were going to have problems with the traditionalists who would fly that flag of um well these upstart bastards aren't playing blues correctly look at them they're just trashing it they're shitting all over it how can they possibly do that you are bad forever (laughs) was people like rl burnside was was he kind of an influence in the band you know had had his music sort of i expect jeffrey must name oh yeah we we love that i just definitely there's some songs i wish we could have pursued some of uh his you know there, there were so many different offshoots I, I i so many different like little subgenres you know of uh of various forms of the blues that uh are so rich and so much fun would have been so much fun for me as a drummer to play but um you know uh, we, we we just didn't go there and jeff jeff was writing so many songs because we thought about like well let's get together let's write songs together but he, he just every rehearsal would come in with another song with another song and I, and I honestly I, I I I I liked just about all of them you know I was like well I like it I don't know if anyone else will but I like it and of course other people did like it yes. but um so in a sense you know we just sort of decided well it's Jeff Jeff is the captain of this ship so let's go wherever he goes whatever distant sees he wants to uh, navigate uh we'll be there with him um until a storm blows us all of course and we drink yes, but absolutely because uh, your you second know. album 
Miami, which is, this is on Chris Stein's own label. So this must have felt like a bit of a blessing from the, the great man from Blondie. Uh, well, um, not necessarily because uh, we, uh, Jeff, Jeff and I used to drive around like Sunset Strip, you know, where a lot of major record companies at the time had offices and Jeff would go in with Fire Love and get immediately kicked out. Um, now, years later, I heard that one office he was not kicked out of. In fact, he was offered a deal, but he turned it down. And um, it's, uh, I just don't get it. I really don't. After all this time, it was an incredible deal. It was from the same guy who brought um, uh, Guns N' Roses later. Uh, all these big metal bands to... Uh, that label and I honestly I can't remember the name of the label damn so yeah. obvious um but um he was responsible for all of that he made a lot of money he could do anything he wanted at that label so at the time there was always a little room you know for well here's a band that's kind of fun and quirky let's see what we can do with this and then we'll make all of our money on this over here and gun club was going to be one of those bands um it didn't turn out that way, but I think that because Jeff was really enamored of Deborah Harry um, and and the band Blondie uh, and Chris, I guess. Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly, but um, I think he wanted to be on Animal Records the moment he heard about the formation of the label. Right. And probably these other offers he turned down because he wanted to do that. Well, that was a mistake on his part. He shouldn't have done that. However, uh, yes, I felt like this is good. This is going to be better. And it was better in some ways. Um, uh, I don't I don't know that the uh, the record, you know, it has its own sound. I think it was Chris and Jeff and the, and the engineer in the studio trying to come up with something and not quite coming up with a focused sound, but what they came up with was good nonetheless. Even though I've criticized it in the past, I, I, I still like it. It's just, I guess it's just me, maybe a picky drummer. Mm. Um, uh, and you know, everyone's that way. Well, it could be better here, it could be better there. And again, Rob is just not as present as I wanted him to be. Um, but my thoughts were that the second album would be kind of a big blowout. It would just be a noise fest, just this really uh, grinding, scary, frightening kind of gun club slithering out of the swamp sound. Uh, but we got almost the opposite of that. <laughs> but, you know, Jeff was writing really some really good pop songs. Uh, and a lot of those songs, you know, I had feedback over the years and, for a lot of people, Miami's their favorite Gun Club album. Yes. And uh, a lot stunning. of the songs they really like. And I really enjoyed playing them live, too. I mean, a lot, all of them were fun. Uh, at this stage, was, was Rob, did Rob leave the band at the end of the, the recording session? Yeah, he, he disappeared. Um, we knew he wanted to leave. Uh, his friends from, uh, that he had met when he lived in Arizona. He was originally from Detroit. Um, but... Uh, he had he'd made some pretty pretty tight friends uh, in uh, Arizona, and they had all moved out to Los Angeles together. And of course, they I think always planned to start a band. 
and all of them being the kind of people they were, they wanted to start sort of some death rock band, I think they called it at the time, right. which seemed quite apropos for Rob and his death rock demeanor. Um, <laughs> he, he was a pretty dark guy, and uh, but very funny. I mean, he just would laugh at anything, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes, so to speak, with him. Um, so when they finally said, you know, yeah, it's a thing. We're going to do it. Let's start the band. Rob was looking to get out. And Ward and I were begging him to stay, of course. We, we just didn't want to lose Rob, uh, lose an anchor like that. It was hard to imagine. Um, but he pretty much recorded all of his parts. Um, well, not pretty much. He recorded everything for Miami and then flew back to L.A. immediately. And we, we couldn't find him for a couple of days. We thought he was hiding in New York or sleeping behind a trash we who knows with rob um but he had just gone back and said well that was it i mean he didn't even show up for the photo session that we later took when we got back to los angeles in santa monica on the beach with the the two palm trees in the background there um he didn't even show up for that so uh, we were disappointed but we knew that was gonna happen anyway but um that's what he wanted to do. And he gave us two records and a lot of shows. I was sad he didn't get to go to Europe uh, with us, but uh, Jeffrey wanted a female in the band. And I was, uh, he really liked uh, uh, Tex, Texacala Jones of uh, that band, Tex and the Horseheads. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, I didn't know her too well. I just saw like a lot of torn clothing and craziness. That, that's that's as deep as I got, as bad as that was for me to think that. That's what I saw. And I mm. thought, marry that to Jeff, and we have a train wreck. <laughs> uh, we have a train that is derailed. And so I immediately kind of stepped in when I heard that he was thinking of that. And I called Patricia, and I, I just thought she's going to laugh at me. She's just going to tell me to, you know. Um, and I said, Patricia, uh, Jeff, we need a bass player. Jeff wants a female. You are a bass player. You are a female. As far as I know, you are still a female and still a bass player. Correct? If that is correct, please come to a rehearsal and save this band. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was trying to be funny with her, but she said, okay, sure. And Patricia is just such a strong person. You know, she lets bullshit just kind of roll off her back. She can deal with it. She's tough. Her mother was from Ireland. Her father was from Italy. And I mean, they were from there. They, were, they weren't second generation. They, one was Irish, one was Italian. So she had quite a mix that she could use and draw upon <laughs> to deal with anybody. And Jeff, to her, was almost like, eh, nothing, not a big deal. And she Excellent. enjoyed it. She thought, well, this is fun. And uh, I liked Patricia. I knew that she really focused you know she had quite a work ethic so if she said she's going to learn those songs i knew she was going to do it and jeff liked her too i mean it was kind of hard not to she was just kind of gorgeous you know and and uh, when she dressed up for the stage i mean wow you know it took a while to just stop staring at her um <laughs> as a drummer of course i didn't have to stop but um i was behind everybody but um so shockingly she said yes it was not a problem we had a show i mean just a couple of days later in san francisco and then we opened for sparks at the santa monica civic 
you know, in front of a couple of thousand people. I don't know how we got that gig. Mm. Um, and the Sparks fans didn't appreciate us much. Um, <laughs> yeah, they didn't know what to make of us. Um, Tricky. But uh, yeah, but it was, you know, like her second show. And she got on that stage and she did it. She pulled it off. And I thought, wow, she's tough. She really is. I knew she was tough, but now I know she's tough. I really know it. And um, so there you go, you know, and, and she stuck it out with Jeff for a long time. A lot of okay. years. This is amazing. Yeah. So then the, the Las Vegas Story album. So then by then right. you'd, you'd got a new guitar. A kid had come back as well. So this is, was this a kind of a, the dream lineup for you at this stage? Well, I had quit a couple of times and then come back and it was just a sort of that I, I played with the cramps for a few shows and recorded with him a little bit and and then uh, Jeff would get off tour and he would call me and say can you come back and I said of course Jeff uh, I said I hated you yeah maybe I do but I also love you at the same time so let's you know let's that's rock and roll right yeah. so um so yeah so so uh, uh kid was just released from the cramps I never really figured out why I'm sure it'll be in his book but um uh and I thought well poor guy come on back to gun club you know Jeff Jeff obviously invited him back and he was right there um and uh yes there were times when I thought wow all four of us knew each other from 1977 on we were all friends way before any bands and we all liked each other before all of this and so this is really, really cool. I love it. It's so comfortable. There's so, there was a lot of tension between Ward and, and Jeff. And I thought, not unwarranted, uh, because I, I loved Ward. I just thought it's, it's, it was hard for me to see him go uh, when he finally did. But, uh, but what a great, comfortable, fun lineup and uh, really fun to do couple of big tours with all of them um because we're just friends we're almost like already a family and um so everything was easy to deal with jeff became increasingly difficult uh to deal with he just did he just i want to live in berlin i want to live in moscow i want to do whatever i want i don't need you guys i can pick up musicians anywhere you know it was an attitude that was kind of hard to live with which is why i finally quit was that sort of a, a mental issue or was that was there a lot of drugs involved there were uh, all kinds of, of uh it was like a whole chemistry set that, you know that you get as a child and you go oh, look fun with chemistry and i think uh, <laughs> jeff jeff had his beakers and he had his little solutions and you know <laughs> i mean i don't know what all he did but i assume it was pretty much everything um it, and and I and I don't I, I I miss Jeff. I think about Jeff every day. I was pissed off. I was so angry at him for a time, but I so wish that Jeff was here. I'd love to be able to call Jeff and say, "You asshole! Why were you such a jerk? Let's go to a recording studio and make another record." You know, but that's just a family. It's just the way it is. You know, there's yeah, kind of a hate and love at the same time. So what's, so your, what's your memory of the Las Vegas? You know, the the album. What's what was it like recording it? Well, that was interesting because we finally did have quite a nice studio, um, Ocean Way, which had recorded so many. They had platinum albums all over the wall. Um, 
Fleetwood Mac. I mean, just like everybody for years had gone in there. I'm like, why? What are we doing in here? But <clears throat> and we had a producer who uh, wasn't. I mean, the project was offered to him, and he took it as a challenge, but really open-minded and 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 really um, just just really good, you know, without being overbearing. I mean, he wasn't a Phil Spector or anything, which might have been a good thing, but but uh, but I think it was a. a a very open, creative time for Jeff to kind of explore some things he 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 wasn't able to uh, with the second album, and so we got songs like "My Man's Gone Now," which I just thought only Jeff would try and do that. Um, and um, "Walking with the Beast," which was one of our original songs, very early songs. Mm -hmm. I saw them do that at the Hong Kong. Cafe, and I was so glad because to me that sort of is I the way the way that song sounds. I wish every Gun Club song sounded big, uh, lots of nice reverb on everything, big sound, just big sound. Mm -hmm. Yet, uh, very nicely, uh, you know, everything is tied together. Everything sounds distinct yet united. I, I I just love that, and I was like, why is it so hard, you know, to get this kind of thing when so many other bands get it automatically? So I loved the the sound of that record, and I loved that Jeff Irick, who the producer, uh, allowed us a lot of room and freedom, <coughs> you know, to kind of, um, you know, to just just figure this out and uh, and uh, give it the best sound he could do. I think for everybody, Gun Club was just a tough nut to crack. You know, what is a Gun Club in 1984 mm. versus everything else that's going on in pop music. I don't think, you know, it wasn't punk. It wasn't really pop. It wasn't really, you know, what was it? And, and I think it's, it was just kind of hard deciding what that was. I think if Jeff had stuck around and maybe we had continued to be an American-based band, uh, we would have found that. Um, I mean, I've, I've never in my life have I met more fans of Gun Club than people I've met the past few years in their 20s. They just, it amazes me. Uh, yes. they, they know more about the band than I do. They know what I did, and I didn't even know I did that. It's <laughs> like, wow, okay. Well, why don't you just, why don't you get up in the morning for me and go to work? <laughs> <laughs> so when the, album, when the album came out, did you then do a tour with the, you know, was it, did you do, you know, quite a tour with that band? Yeah, we immediately uh, had that. We had a booking agent in New York, and he just he would book us anywhere. He doesn't matter. Uh, a back porch in, you know, some Bayou, Louisiana, uh, good three hundred dollar guarantee. Go play, you know, and we we would do it. Um, so I I liked that, but it, we were on the road constantly. So we 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 had a big American tour, just coast to coast, uh, Canada. Um, you know, Vancouver, London, Ontario, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, all that. We just, we did all of that. Then we went to Europe. Uh, and, and again, it was the same kind of thing. Uh, all over Germany, all over uh, Netherlands, uh, UK, of course. London was our base. So mm. you know, we'd play London and go here, play, come back to London, go up to Newcastle. We did Scotland. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, it was really, it was amazing. It was just, it was so much fun uh, to do, but um, there were a number of things that happened that kind of made that tour 
sort of the last straw for me. Um, at the very end of it, uh, in Manchester, our van was broken into, a lot of things were stolen, including about 30 hours of videotape of the entire tour. Um, this would have made the most incredible document, of course, I think about that now. Mm. Um, you know, and that happens all over the world. I mean, it, it, that's a thing, bands play, people know it. There's their van, maybe there's something in their van. I don't know why they think that when all the instruments are actually on stage at that moment, but I guess, I don't know what they think they'll find in these vans parked outside a venue. Gold bars, uh, stacks of cash, I don't know. But they did find a couple of symbols of mine and a, a guitar player or a guitar owned by Kid and a bag which had all the videotapes in it. So they just grab it, you know, and go. Um, that was when I found out, I was told a couple of days before that, I was like, well, how much money are we going to make on this tour? Anything? Like, eh, a few hundred dollars. I went, oh, really? We're playing in front of, you know, 2,000 here, 5,000 there. We played a couple of festivals a couple of grand a piece, really, that's all. Uh, and then Jeff said, well, I'm moving to Europe permanently, that's it. I'm not going back to the state. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. I have a wife, I live in Los Angeles. So all of these things kind of added up for me. And when they told me, in the, in, and, uh, and it was just kind of like, well, you know, we don't give a shit what you do. We don't care, this is what we're doing, like it or not, there's no money. And I'm like, damn, I really am sort of wasting my time, aren't I? what a sad thing for me because I'd love mm. playing the music so much. And, and the attitude was just so, uh, well, at the time I thought so awful that um, I'm like, uh, well, it seems very spiteful and um, gosh, I guess I'll be really mature and just be spiteful back. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. You know, when you're young, things yes. happen. Probably you wish never happened. So in Paris, um, and my girlfriend was over there with us. She was completely, you know, not causing any issues or anything. Um, in Paris, after the show, there was there was there were a few dates left, the French dates, and I think Geneva, Madrid, and then that that was it. Um, we got our passports uh, from the road manager and flew the coop. We left. We got on the train. We missed the train. We had to get the one at midnight, rode all night to Calais, took the ferry, um, got back to London, uh, got on the plane, flew to New York, got our car out of storage, drove back to Los Angeles. So it was sort of like this 72-hour ordeal. <laughs> it's like something from uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, isn't it? The I know. Just trying to, trying to escape. And, you know, I, I really did feel bad about it. But at the same time, I'm like, wow, you know, I, I was led to believe this. I was led to believe that. I, all of these things. And then suddenly, all at once, they're telling me, no, none of that's true. None of that's going to happen. We're quite content to sever all ties with uh, our past. And, um, and plus, I knew at that point, Jeffrey was seriously wrestling with a drug problem i mean a really bad drug and drinking problem and i thought i don't know how much longer he can last i don't know anyone that can drink that much yes and last i mean he was amazing in that he could play and perform 
and really never miss a beat. I couldn't believe it. And he didn't. But nonetheless, I would see him, you know, go off and, you know, find drugs. The whole purpose of the day was to find drugs. Um, and, uh, and the belligerence that comes with that, I don't know. It just all sort of crashes in on you. And so yes, I left. Not... That was so um, on the practical front, what happens to your sort of like gear, like the drum kit? Did you just lose it or did you try and I left get... it there. I, it was the sacrifice to the gods of rock and roll. Uh, my purple premier drum set <laughs> was uh, given up. And uh, that was fine. I honestly didn't think I would be playing in another band Anyway, or at least, you know, I wanted to take a long break. Yes. Um, and uh, so, you know, it was there. I said, well, they got to find somebody. So you'll have a drum, a drum set. Too. And that is going to be the end of part two. I know the excitement is mounting. There was a slight issue we had with um, reception quality. But anyway, look, um, so we'll leave it there and then pick up with part three. Coming very soon. Anyway, Terry, thanks a lot. <laughs>